Father God, this morning uh, we come to you ready and anticipating, Lord, that you will speak to us, that you will meet our needs, Lord, that you know individually what our hearts need to hear, God, and communally as a church how we need to be spoken to by you. So this morning, Lord, we ask that we would be open to your word, that our hearts and minds, Lord, would be uh, prepared to hear from you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in our series, The Nuts and Bolts of Church, I get to speak about communion. And I'm glad to speak about that because I think it's much easier than, like last week, to have to speak about tithes and offerings or uh, something else like that. Communion, in the scriptures, it's, it's pretty clear that Jesus institutes it. Um, and so I don't think I have to do any sort of arguing or convincing that we're supposed to do it. Uh, so why do we celebrate communion? Quite simply because Jesus says to keep doing this and do this in remembrance of me. Communion, as you probably know, is, is pretty important in the Christian life and also it's quite a variety of experiences that different churches and people have with communion. You may be at your work and you may see someone, uh, a new employee at a desk a few down from yours and they have a Bible and you get excited, oh, and you start having lunch with this person discussing your faith and all these exciting things. And you might invite them here uh, and as we do communion, they get very confused and talk to you afterwards, why in the world did you do uh, communion that way? And, and they may be from a Catholic church, or from uh, a Baptist church, or a church that does it quite different than us, where it becomes a very important thing that we do it differently. When I talk about communion this morning, I want to talk about three aspects of it. I want to talk about communion as our collective memory, Communion as actual participation, and communion as a kingdom meal. So when I say communion is our collective memory, by this I mean that communion helps us to shape our stories, to form our identity, to shape our imagination as first and foremost a Christian people. Let's read Matthew twenty six seventeen through 30. When I just spoke and said that Jesus uh, tells us to do communion. These are his words as he does. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So when I say communion is our collective memory, First off, we need to take seriously the fact that Jesus is having the Passover Seder uh, with his disciples. And so he's playing into, first off, 
Israel's collective memory. Uh, Israel was commanded in Exodus 12 and 13 to begin their story at Passover. Now I want to read in length uh, a big portion of Exodus 12 where the Passover meal, the Seder, gets instituted because it's important for us to understand that meal for communion for us to have any meaning. So I have it on the screen and I'll read Exodus 12, 1 through 14 and 26 and 27. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. In other words, right, the very structure of Israel's year, of time itself, is to be formed by the remembering of their story here. Verse 3, Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roasted over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some of it is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate, and that word commemorate, right? We, right? we can literally see that it means to commemorate, to remember alongside one another. For generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. And 26 and 27. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshipped. So what Christ does in the Passover meal is he takes this act, right, that symbolized for the Jews their deliverance from slavery, and Christ reinterprets it with himself as the climax. He is the pure and spotless lamb for their salvation. And so they are to remember collectively this story, forms them. I want to talk for a minute about an artist named Devorah Sperber. She's uh, from New York, and she makes work that I think 
has some interesting insights into the nature of communion. She uh, deals primarily with materials like spools of thread or pipe cleaner, uh, very tactile materials, and makes them into these, these grand uh, pictures. I have a video that will explain her process, but I just wanted to, to set that up of, of who she is, and you're about to see some of her work, so enjoy uh, learning about Dvoris Berber. For this technique, I started compiling a list of things that reminded me of pixels and yet were very sculptural, that were beautiful objects in and of themselves, readily available, and had a wide color palette, and thread spools naturally rose to the top of that list. The spool of thread is such a beautiful object in and of itself. It really, I mean, anybody that's ever walked through a craft store and hasn't noticed uh, the satiny finish of a spool of thread uh, hasn't lived. <laughs> Today, Sperber is using thread spools to make a deconstructed image of Star Trek's Mr. Spock. Basically, what you're seeing here is a thread spool assembly station, and there's a partially assembled map with each color uh, corresponding uh, to a map and also to the spool of thread. And how this whole process begins is I start with a JPEG, a digital image, and any JPEG is constructed from up to thousands and thousands of pixels. So what I do is I break that uh, JPEG down into an exact number of pixels so that each pixel corresponds with one spool of thread. So in this case, this is 29 pixels wide, and that will be the number of columns on this piece. And I now have a custom software program that helps me translate pixels into whatever palette, in this case, spools of thread. So through a very labor-intensive process, I enter in all the colors of a palette, and basically can just push a button and have a JPEG from Photoshop translate into the maps that you're seeing here. So each one of these spools of thread corresponds to a specific pixel in my original image. There's something about taking a lowly material and kind of raising it up to, if you want to still refer to fine art as high art, that's kind of a nice uh, juxtaposition. is the final product and this is kind of like a very enlarged JPEG in a sense that you're actually focusing on the individual units of color versus the whole image. The work is completed when Sperber sets up a viewing device. But what happens in the viewing sphere is that it shrinks or condenses those pixels back into their photographic origin. So you can actually see how radically different the image looks when it's expanded and contracted. And it shows just how limited our human perception is, that you subtly shift scale and yet our interpretation of reality changes. In one case, looking at abstract spools of thread, abstract blocks of color, and whereas here you have you know, the focus being more on the recognizable image. But there's another aspect of the sphere that interests me, that it functions like the human eye in that it inverts imagery, like the retina. And it functions like the human brain in that it's taking this raw data that makes no sense at all and it's assembling it into something recognizable. This work is a life-size 
interpretation of the Mona Lisa. And if you look directly at the thread, you could see that there is very little information there. But what you're seeing in the viewing sphere is how little information your brain needs to recognize an image that it's already been exposed to. And one of the things that most people find particularly baffling about this piece is that you can actually make out her facial features in, in a very subtle way. In fact, this is all there is. There's, there's no face at all. So it's actually a perfect demonstration in how our brain is actually projecting an image that it doesn't exist out there in the world like we think of. Very few paintings can be transformed into such a small thread school work and still function. The reason this functions is because we all know what the Mona Lisa looks like. So if you'd never seen the Mona Lisa, which I've never met a person who hasn't, who knows what they'd see, but they wouldn't be seeing the Mona Lisa. It is because Sperber chooses such recognizable subjects that these barely there images are identifiable. She's used this technique to reproduce some of the world's most familiar images, from iconic paintings by Warhol, Vermeer, Monet, and Picasso, to representations of The Last Supper and Marilyn Monroe. A neurologist friend in my studio was looking at a series of work, and after studying it for a while, he goes, oh, this is neurological priming. And so, of course, I wrote the word down and looked it up to see what it meant. And it basically describes how the brain learns to make sense of visual imagery that it hasn't been exposed to. So like a baby first sees the two black dots and then finally realizes, oh, that's, you know, mom. And that's going to mean, you know, she's going to provide whatever I need. So then, you know, the baby, you're seeing them build their memory uh, so they can understand the raw data that makes up the, the physical world. And the more I've learned about neurology, the more it informs my work to create more kind of surprising experiences for people. I initially stumbled upon her work when I was looking at um, artists' reinterpretations of... Da Vinci's Last Supper, and hers came up, and I have some images of it, and I, and I thought, well, that's pretty interesting, so then I learned more about her and about her process, and I thought there was extreme connections to communion. She uses spools of thread, these, she says, mundane objects, uh, but they're somewhat beautiful even in themselves. But she uses them to create something uh, much more grand in her vision. And she does that by combining them, but also um, placing them through this viewing sphere that she has. And that, of course, sort of reconstitutes them into the image. But it only works if we're familiar with the image. It only works if that image is already ingrained in our memory. And that's why I think she's very important as we talk about communion as our collective memory. Because you see, we find our identity in the stream of shared memory that is the Christian story, anchored in Jesus' cross and resurrection. We are being put back together, reunited through Jesus with our Father in heaven, and united with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. 
communion, you, you might have come today wondering maybe, well, what is he going to say about the presence of Christ here? Is it actually the body and blood of Jesus? Right? These are some of our questions that we come to with communion. Well, it actually becomes it in the sense that our memory constitutes it as such. When we don't have a shared story or a shared memory, right, we're broken off from one another and from God. The opposite of remembering is not so much forgetting as much as it is uh, a dismembering. It is community uh, shattering. I mean, if you think of some of your family's most beautiful moments, right, how these moments have shaped sort of your understanding of who you are as a member of that family, uh, shaped your love for one another, and shaped then the way you've lived, it's because of these memories and these stories that you can tell. Imagine for a minute that you have a family, right, that you have uh, two children, let's say eight and nine, natural-born children, and you decide Uh, once these children are this age, that you want to adopt another child. But you want to adopt a child that is the same age. That's eight or nine. So you welcome them into your family, right? And it's your first Christmas coming up this year, and your natural-born kids are super excited, and like many kids, so is the adopted child. But you have uh, your Christmas celebration, and maybe there's some traditions or ritual that your family does every year. Let's say uh, dad puts the star on the Christmas tree every year. For the kids who are eight and nine, they're going to remember every year of that happening, and that moment is going to have significant meaning. They'll probably be excited for it, joking around, oh, dad's going to put up the star. Oh, the tree's extra tall this year. Maybe he won't be able to reach, playing around. And the adopted child will come and have no memory, no recollection of what sort of meaning is there in this. Why does this really matter? And they might feel, they probably will feel, left out dismembered until you as your family take them in and start telling them these stories over again. Oh, well, when Jimmy was four, you know, dad was trying to put the star up and he knocked the whole tree over. And this kid starts to, in little ways, become part of your family, of your community. And as Christmases get celebrated on and on and the kid's 15, 16 years old, they now have made those memories part of who they are. And they are formed as a member of your family. They're changed into the way your family acts. If your family loves well and is generous, that child through those memories will likely become loving and generous. If your family's selfish or rude or short-tempered with people, that child will probably become short-tempered, rude, and selfish. In the Seder meal that Jesus reinterprets, the Jews remember who they are. Through the rituals of the Seder, they become a part of that community, going back to the slaves who left Egypt. The Lord's Supper, too, is an identity-making meal of remembrance. Communion is an act of collective remembering, but it is also more than that. This is where I say communion is actual participation. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 10, verses 16 through 21. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? 
Do I mean then that food sacrificed to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God, and I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. So there's four kind of traditional views of communion. Uh, you may know all of them or some of them. There's the Catholic transubstantiation. There's the Lutheran consubstantiation. There's the uh, Reformed and Evangelical uh, spiritual or mysterious presence. And then finally, there's uh, the Anabaptist Evangelical um, memorial view. That final one, like it sounds, kind of has to do with the first thing we talked about. It's primarily an act of remembering. So we take communion so that we can remember what Jesus did on the cross. And if he's present at all, it's because he's always present. There's nothing special about it beyond that we're remembering uh, the cross. Again, going backwards, one before that, the spiritual or mysterious presence is that Jesus is present through the Holy Spirit In some mysterious way, he is actually here, and something actually happens when we participate in communion. Uh, That one is the one that I'll be advocating this morning. The Lutheran and the Catholic views, uh, they're pretty complex. They're really interesting, and if you want to learn more about them, uh, you can talk to myself or Chuck or, or do some research on the internet, but we don't have time to go into them this morning. However, while I just discussed briefly those views, a lot of people get caught up in those, asking, how is it that Jesus' body becomes the bread and his blood becomes the wine? How does this really happen? Is there substance changed? Uh, If so, why doesn't the wine taste like the blood? Right? These sorts of questions. Um, And these are serious questions and and worthy questions to ask. but it can be a bit much. Medieval theologians took this uh, very far. They discussed these issues relentlessly, um, developing intense rules and regulations for handling the elements, along with regimented punishments for anyone who spilled the wine, right? Because you spilled the actual blood of Jesus. You just wasted his blood that saves. And so they were really punished. But before even these medieval theologians, St. Augustine Uh, talked about communion quite a bit. But he wasn't so much concerned with how the bread and the wine become the body and the blood. Rather, and I think this is interesting, and this is what I'm going to emphasize, he says it's not so much how the body and the blood become the bread and the wine, but how we, in partaking, become what we eat. Right? How we become the body of Christ in the act. So when I say actual participation, communion is actual participation, I mean to say that we believe that the Holy Spirit is actually present and partaking of the bread and wine, and we are therefore actually spiritually participating in a union with Christ, a fellowship with God, and fellowship with God never leaves us unchanged. There are essentially three bodies of Christ, right? There's his actual body, born of the virgin, walked upon the earth, actually suffered and died and was raised again for our sins. 
Then, of course, there's the body of Christ that we talk about in communion. His body and blood in the bread and wine present with us. And then, of course, we know about a third body of Christ, the church. All three are intimately connected. The church is more than just a symbol of Christ, right? We actually do the work of Christ on earth. We actually act as his body. The bread and the wine are actually the body and blood of Christ, just like we believe that the church, that all of us together are actually the body of Christ. You may have heard the saying that there are no hands or feet of Jesus on this earth but the church, but us. And while I'm not trying to convince you that these are actually Jesus' hands, right here you can touch them and it'd be like you're touching Jesus, I am trying to say that we do actually do the work of Jesus. He does not accomplish his purposes on this earth but through us, but through people. The Spirit in people. We believe that because the presence of the Holy Spirit is in the church's life, we can say that it is the body of Christ. In a similar way, because we believe the Holy Spirit is intimately present in communion, we can believe we are spiritually partaking in the body and blood of Christ. This is only possible, you see, because God created matter, and later, in the incarnation, he enfleshed himself in it. So I have a quote here for you. That God created the world means that all material things reflect God's glory and power. The incarnation cements this connection. Christ's eternal and glorified new humanity means that human life is now enmeshed in the life of God. God's story and the creation story come together in Christ, making things more than mere bits of matter and opening our eyes to their ultimate transfiguration. Creation, incarnation, and the ultimate recreation of the cosmos reveal a God for whom matter matters, and material things open our eyes to the one who is above and beyond all things. Jesus Christ, God incarnate, God as matter, stuff, right? Body, flesh, and blood has forever bridged the divide of creation and creature. That's Leonard Vanderzee. The sacrament of a communion is a way in which God communicates with us that is different than mere words and sentences. In communion, God communicates to our creatureliness, our humanity. It's not that the bread and wine merely aid our human understanding of God's promises, but that they aid our appropriation, our receiving of God's promises. We need physical and material confirmation of our new relationship with God in Jesus Christ because we are physical and material beings. This is how communion is a means of grace, right? That is to say, it's a way in which God lavishly gives himself to us. It's for this reason, along with, as I said in the previous point, communion's tendency, tendency to shape our imagination that we do communion weekly here. The only argument that I often hear about doing communion less than weekly would be perhaps that it'll lose some of its meaning, right? If it's such an important thing, why do you do it so often? You can't 
possibly think about it in such great depth if you're doing it every week. Well, imagine someone using that same argument about prayer, about reading your Bible, about a sermon. It just wouldn't hold up. The fact that we may forget the importance of it doesn't neglect the fact that we need it and that we ought to keep doing it. So that's why we do it here at Every Week. Finally, communion is a kingdom meal. By that I mean to say that it is a picture of the future that God has promised us. People of different classes, races, ethnicities, age, intellect, and maturity in faith come together to share one loaf. Let's read 18, 33 in uh, 1 Corinthians 11. We read this earlier, but I'll, I'll re-say it here. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. Unity, we should see in these verses, is essential to communion, or it is not communion. Right? That's what Paul is saying. Um, maybe some of you are familiar with a gentleman named Oscar Romero. His full name, Oscar Arnolfo Romero y Galdemez. He lived from 1970 to 1980. And he was a prominent Roman Catholic priest in El Salvador during the 1960s and 1970s. And he became the Archbishop of San Salvador in 1977. After witnessing numerous violations of human rights, he began to speak out on behalf of the poor and the victims of repression. This led to numerous conflicts both with the government in El Salvador and within the Catholic Church. A few weeks after he became archbishop, his close friend, a Jesuit priest, was murdered by one of the death, quads, death squads in, in El Salvador. Um, and Romero was deeply hurt by this, and his response, I think, was quite courageous and, and is, is beautiful. This is what he did. He was convinced of the community-shaping power of the kingdom meal, communion, and so he decreed that there would only be one Mass on the following Sunday for the entire diocese. That meant that in order to receive communion, everyone had to come to the cathedral in San Salvador. Now, some of the uh, wealthier plantation owners, they came to Romero and they were appalled at this decree because they said to him, this would deny them the opportunity to fulfill their Sunday obligation to partake in communion. As Catholics, this is uh, extremely important. However, 
They could have driven to the city center. These are the wealthy people. They have the ability to come to the city on a Sunday. But they'd have to stand in the sun and even worse, take communion with a bunch of unwashed poor people. But this was the point, right? Romero knew that communion anticipated the kingdom, that everyone, rich and poor, needed to take communion together for the sake of unity and justice. Three years later, after speaking out against U.S. military support for the government of El Salvador and calling for soldiers to disobey orders to fire on innocent civilians, Archbishop Romero was shot dead while celebrating Mass at the small chapel of the cancer hospital where he lived. This was a man who understood the power of communion to form community, to form communities of justice that anticipate the coming kingdom of God, that he died about to take the Mass, about to partake in the body and blood of Jesus, shot dead because he wouldn't give in to injustice. Communion anticipates the future kingdom of God as it calls for radical unity amongst Christians. It also anticipates the kingdom by its very nature as bread and wine. It anticipates the kingdom because it's a celebration of the creativity God has endowed humanity with. Do you ever wonder why it's bread and wine? Is it simply that bread was maybe similar to Jesus' flesh tone and, and wine is the color of blood? Or is there something more, right? Because neither bread or wine are strictly natural or God-made things. They're the product of culture. They're cultural goods made by the ingenuity of humanity. And God chooses not only to say that those are okay and good things, but he chooses to represent himself through them. Wine also signals to us the future party that God will throw when Christ returns in his full splendor and beauty. It ought to be a sign to us of joy, gladness, and celebration. Some churches might object to using wine, uh, but part of that is likely because of our culture's misuse. But as the church, we have the opportunity to show our culture, to show an American culture who is far too often uh, overusing wine, indulging in it, or on the extreme shaming, legalistically denying it to others, we can show what it looks like to enjoy God's fruit in a proper way. The bread and the wine, we must remember though, are just the hors d'oeuvres. They are the pre-feast. They should stir in us a great anticipation for the banquet we are awaiting where we will see Christ face to face, where all sorrow, sickness, sin, and death will be no more. So, communion. Finally, it promotes identity-forming contemplation of our past. All right? Do this in remembrance of me. It leads to participatory praise in the present when they had sung a hymn This is right after they took communion. And finally, it fosters in us a kingdom hope for the future. Jesus says, I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. We're going to take communion a little bit differently this morning. And the band is going to come up 
in a moment, and they're going to play three songs. And it's, it's later now. Our service has run a bit long. Um, but they're going to play three songs. And at any time during those three songs, I'm going to be in the back, in the lobby. And I will have the bread and the wine, and I will wash my hands right before. But you will come, and I'll, I'll present it to you. I'll give it to you as we celebrate communion as unity amongst us, celebrating the sacrifice of Jesus. And I'm looking forward to that. I think that's going to be really enjoyable for me. And I, I don't want you to feel like you are forced to take communion ever. We do it weekly, not so that you're forced to do it weekly, but so that you have the opportunity to do it weekly.